The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines. Policymakers and business leaders start their descent on Davos as Oxfam warns the world's roughly 2,000 billionaires have more than 60% of the global population. Uh, don't miss our live coverage of the World Economic Forum starting today at 1600 CET. Oil prices rise amid unrest in Libya as the OPEC producers' two biggest oil fields shut down as military blockade chokes supply. Emmanuel Macron will make a plea to take another top executives to choose France as they stop at the French President's summit on their way to Davos. UK Chancellor Sajid Javid warns UK businesses will not adhere to Brussels rules after Brexit, prompting criticism from Britain's manufacturing sector saying it will cost billions to scrap EU standards. Well, good morning. Thank you very much for joining us here on Squawk Box. It is Davos week, finally. So let's get to some of the key uh, elements around what's happening in Davos this week. The world's 2,000-plus billionaires together boast more than more wealth than 60% of the global population. That's roughly 4.6 billion people. That's according to a new Oxfam study published ahead of this year's World Economic Forum in Davos. The charity is calling on policymakers to reduce inequality by raising taxes on the rich. It says just a 0.5% increase in taxes on the wealthy could fund some 17 million new jobs. Well, Juliana, climate change and the resulting loss of nature could threaten over half of the world's GDP. That's according to a joint report by the World Economic Forum and PwC UK. So the study found that 44 trillion dollars with a T worth of value generation is dependent on nature and therefore at risk from rising global temperatures. Those sectors most threatened include construction, agriculture and food and beverages. I feel like climate change is going to be a very key theme of uh, financial markets as well this year. Definitely Absolutely. With those radar. major change- changes coming out from BlackRock just last week, yes. it will no doubt be a central topic at Davos this week. And on that note, I want to remind you, don't miss our live coverage from the World Economic Forum in Davos. It starts today at 1600 CET. While in Davos, Jeff will be sitting down with Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam for a first on interview. That is all coming up tomorrow at 16.30 CET and will certainly be a not-miss event. Well, U.S. President Donald Trump is set to hold talks with the EU's Ursula von der Leyen at Davos on Tuesday after signing a phase one deal with Beijing last week. Washington's focus now shifts to heightened trade tensions with Europe and France's plan to impose a digital tax on U.S. big tech. The U.S. has threatened to retaliate with a 100% levy on French champagne and handbags. Those tariffs could come into effect as soon as the end of the month if no progress is made. President Trump has told U.S. farmers the phase one deal with China will be a boon to U.S. agricultural goods and thanked them for sticking with him over the course of the trade war. Farmers have been particularly hard hit since the U.S. triggered trade tensions with China some 18 months ago. 
However, the new deal includes a pledge by China to purchase an additional $200 billion in U.S. goods over the next two years. Now, speaking at the Farmers' Convention in Texas, Trump heralded the reworked agreement with China and took aim at his critics across the aisle. The two momentous trade deals we completed last week are just the beginning of a really incredible story because nobody thought we'd ever get here. They say the deal was with China would be impossible to make and getting rid of NAFTA would be totally impossible. One of the reasons it was totally possible, it was such a bad deal for us. Good for the other countries, not good for us. We're achieving what no administration has ever achieved before. And what do I get out of it? Tell me. I get impeached. That's what I get out of it. <laughs> By these radical left lunatics, I get impeached. But that's okay. The farmers are sticking with Trump. They're sticking with Trump. Well, let's bring in the first guest of the morning, Manish Singh, Chief Investment Officer, Crossbridge Capital. Thank you very much for joining us. So I think it's fair to say the highlight of last week was the signing of that phase one trade deal, finally getting signatures on the bottom line there. But there's still a huge amount of skepticism around how long this truce will last and whether Beijing will be able to actually fulfill its promises. What's your take on the, uh, the lasting nature of this trade truce? Well, that's true. I call it inconvenient truce in the sense, you know, we have got something. The problem has always been about enforcement. It's mm -hmm. not about the rules. Rules are in place in China. Depends on how they enforce it. And also in terms of the detail of the deal, we know that there is some additional purchase agreement that is signed up. It's over two year period. So you can't just conclude in six months time and say whether they are by playing by the rule or not. So that leaves uncertainty. And then, of course, you have election. And knowing Mr. Trump, you know, mm -hmm. he will probably, you know, have his own antics again going on closer to the election time, depending on how the polls move. But in short, given that it's the truth, it is going to help the market because businesses don't like uncertainty what's going to happen. I mean, if it's a two-year period, maybe everything happens towards the end of two years, all anxiety towards the end of two years. But at least for now, people think, okay, this can carry on and people can invest and keep working on it. I think it's an excellent way to put it. It's basically a truce, isn't it? Look, yeah. it's it. we've had a standoff, you know, things weren't going well. Let's just, like, let's just settle down and take a step backwards and calm down. Do you think, though, that as time goes on, that, um, as you mentioned, that maybe Trump will start to double down on the tariffs if indeed he is starting to get behind in the polls because that has played really well with the electorate, whether we like it or not. I think I, I, I'm 100% sure that if things were not going very well for him in polls, I think he will double down on tariffs mm -hmm. because that's exactly how he came to power. Remember, he said that none of the previous presidents have done a deal and China is ripping us off and currency manipulator and everything. Now, the reality is very different. As we know, reality is completely different. And it, it's, it's inconvenient for America because China is a rising power. Mm -hmm. and, and America, I'm not saying America is diminishing, but at least, you know, it is not keeping up to where it used to be. But there's a recognition on part of America as well that they need China. Because China, U.S. is 20 trillion economy, China is 12 trillion economy. China growing is good for America as well because America needs to sell its own products. So they do realize that they have to work with China, but then, you know, there's a lot of politics. how much does China really need the United States? Because what we saw during that almost two-year trade spat between those two global powers is that China sure. became increasingly self-reliant. It started looking elsewhere, started forging other relationships with other trading partners. There were actually some trading partners that benefited from the trade spat in certain areas such as agri agriculture and resources such as Australia. Does China need the U.S. as much as the U.S. needs China? 
it's a very difficult question but does china need america i would say yes i think that they 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 still need a lot of technology coming from america they need the know how they need the american market even though they're trying to develop the asian market as well and a, a, a reliance on somebody you know who plays by the rule and in in that sense you know two two parties two strong party working together is going to be much beneficial for the world than two of the main crucial party in economy fighting with each other because that doesn't help anyone yeah. and of course the role of us dollar because remember the chinese capital account is not open so you you cannot i mean china cannot be a superpower unless they open their capital account where investors can bring the money in take out at will and that hasn't happened and they still need a lot of financial assets and financial market as you're saying because of record number of debt and of course you know america has huge control of imf world bank and various bodies so so china has to play ball with america mm-hmm. there was an interesting stat that the syngenta ceo brought up last week of course syngenta the ag company the swiss based company that was taken out by chem china yeah. in that unprecedented deal back in 2017 he highlighted the statistic that china has 21% of the world's population and only 7% of the arable land so certainly from an agricultural perspective mm. they need to they, they need uh, external support when it comes to ag um but I'm curious your take on what this deal means for US farmers for them to become so much more reliant on China obviously as a percentage of their customer base under this new deal China is going to become a much bigger player for them. I mean how do you think about the risk this poses to US farmers so that they have to now become so reliant on China? Sure. I mean I don't think that Trump is really helping the US farmers. I don't believe that. I think the US farmers like any farmers are open to agrees of nature unless un- until unless you are in eurozone and then you can have your uh, protection from brussels and that can help you but i don't think america really plays that game of protecting the farmers mm-hmm. uh, trump uses this to to trump his number up in 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 the rust belt but i don't think he, he can really protect the us farmers and like you point out an over reliance on china is not going to be helpful because china is not going to buy more than it needs china is never going to do that no matter what mm-hmm. they sign up to and what they say so, so if will will china be able to fulfill those very ambitious targets of agricultural purchases which i think is about double what they were originally purchasing yeah. before the trade spat I I I I believe no I mean I I think it's a no and and they will find some way of saying that okay in aggregate we'll buy something else and let's hit this 200 billion number I mean that's possible but I don't think that China is really going to buy something that it doesn't need it has mm. never done that and I think anybody who believes that they'll be disappointed mm. so I think that the American farmers will be disappointed they will have to find newer markets and if they have a deal with UK and have a deal with Europe and they can push some of the products then yes they will be able to mm. Now Mandy raised an interesting point Uh, around the potential that if President Trump starts to pull badly as we run mm. into the election, you know, will he look to reignite tensions and impose perhaps further tariffs? But given that China's economy is becoming so much more domestically focused, mm-hmm. how much does Beijing actually care about tariffs? Certainly they sting the Chinese economy, but we've seen a lot of resilience mm. from the domestic consumer in China. So, how much is is that should that really be a worry for the Chinese economy. I think, I think they care in terms of sentiments of global market and and investors. In that sense they care. I mean to give example I have done some guest lecture of Chinese entrepreneurs who came to Cambridge and when I was speaking to them nobody talked to me about the trade war. Their main concerns are you know how they are going to uh, sell their products not just abroad but in China. They need to have good partnership with good technology people good people that's the main concern and if you look at in china i think the top down decision has been made to be less and less reliant on us and that helps the uk mm-hmm. so they have made that strategic move it takes maybe 10 15 years for them to completely get 
get themselves off uh, reliance in America. But in general, in China, I don't think people are really thinking about America in terms of where they want to be. I, I think you raised an excellent point about resilience, because if you take a look at the Chinese economic numbers that came out at the end of last week, while, yes, okay, headline number for 2019, 6.1% was the slowest since 1990, the trajectory is encouraging, right? Retail sales, IP, fixed asset investment, all better than expected. There is a resilience there. And that's all with the trade spats and the tariffs in place. So how much more does the Chinese economy potentially reignite if we do have this, as you put it, truce between the two powers? Well, I think the Chinese growth is going to slow down, keep, keep slowing down. I don't think that they can, they're going back to six and a half or seven percent. And that's the base effect because you are a larger economy. And even if you're growing at five, four and a half or whatever that matter is, I think that is still fine. Uh, if you look at, of course, it's a command economy, so being driven by the, the, the people in the uh, at the center. Now, they want to keep the people happy, so which means that you want to see that there is no trade war, there is no... I think it's investment is the key thing because you need investors, you need capital investment to, to, to keep happening all the time as they keep developing their own local market. But if you talk to anybody, uh, uh, my sister-in-law, she lives in China, I speak to her, oh. she, she is a teacher, right? as middle class as you can imagine, you know, teacher. And she's very happy with what's happening in China. So when you speak to the people, they're not disappointed. And I know people are talking about Xi Jinping is president of president for life. I mean, this is not a big topic in China. They are looking at whether they have job, whether the economy is growing, and they they are fine. So he's that. only popular, and people don't mind about him being president for life, so long as they have food on the table. Agreed, they feel absolutely. like they're getting richer, and yeah. they have a job. It's yeah. all about social stability. Absolutely, I think I think that is exactly what they care about. Which is why when when people talk in terms of democracy and China should be a democracy, or you know, people can argue about what form of democracy is good or bad. But for them, it's about just growing the economy, and there is no mass unemployment or even high increase in unemployment. And, of course, income inequality has become a big issue everywhere and which is why you saw President Xi go after graft and corruption and he's been doing that for the last two, three, five years and that is just going to carry on. Income inequality will no doubt be a big topic at, at Davos, Davos yeah. this week. Uh, but let's just round out the conversation around U.S.-China and look at the U.S. side of things. Do you think that this uh, trade truce will be enough to restart CapEx spending in the U.S.? Because business investment has certainly been one of the uh, key sort of victims of the trade war, that businesses have been holding back on making major decisions given the uncertainty. Do you think we're going to see a step up in spending now? I think we will see. So my, my short answer is yes. I think that the UK, US equities will do well. And I mean, look at the US housing stat number on Friday. It was absolute stunning. I mean, you have to go back to Bush era 2006, you know, to have 1.6 million housing starts. So it just tells you that liquidity, low rates, low mortgage, these make a lot of difference. Now, one might be cynic and say they are pulling up demand from the future. But, you know, if you're looking at next one year or next six months, as we look in the market when we're trading, I think it's a positive sign of what's happening in US. Manish, just hold that thought. We're going to get back to you very shortly as our guest host. Okay, Manish Singh, Chief Investment Officer with Crossbridge Capital, is staying with us. Also coming up on the show, tensions flaring up in Libya, causing oil prices to surge as world leaders look for solutions. Stay with us. The data in this podcast is brought to you by Refinitiv, our global data and analytics partner for Squawk Box Podcast, a road to Davos. Refinitiv is an open data ecosystem powering the financial markets through an open platform, advanced technologies, and deep domain expertise. Learn more at refinitiv.com forward slash Davos.
Welcome back to Squawk Box. Well, oil prices have surged to weekly highs after two large production facilities in Libya were shut down by a military blockade. Forces loyal to the Libyan National Army closed a pipeline in the latest development of infighting between two rival factions. World leaders had pledged on Sunday not to interfere in the Libyan conflict after a summit in Berlin. Our Dan Murphy joins us now from Abu Dhabi with more. Give us the lowdown on this, Dan. What are the key takeaways? Maddie, good morning to you. Well, here's what you need to know this morning. First, as you pointed out, oil prices tracking at their highest levels in more than a week right now. We have Brent crude up 65, 64 US a barrel, advancing 1.2% right now. And NYMEX below the 60 USD handle, but still showing a more than 1% upside here at 59.14. Now, this, of course, comes after we saw several ports in an oil field being shut down by troops loyal to Khalifa Haftar in Libya. Now, at the moment, we understand that two-thirds of Libya's total output of about 1.2 million barrels per day has been shut in after those fields were overrun by the Libyan National Army. That means that about 800,000 barrels per day of oil out of Libya is at risk right now. Now, what's interesting is that typically when we see these geopolitical tensions in the Middle East impacting the oil market, it fades almost immediately. But what's happening here is price elevation off the back of physical barrels actually being restricted from the market. Uh, in the past, we've seen these tensions in the Middle East boil up. Oil prices will spike, but then there'll be a retracement. We're not necessarily seeing that retracement right now because we're talking about real barrels here. Now, what also happened is that this blockade essentially took place ahead of peace talks that were underway in Berlin. We saw the heads of these two rival Libyan groups. This is the UN-backed government of National Accord and the LNA, which have been meeting with Western leaders to essentially try and broker some kind of deal here. We have seen some progress, and this is quite significant. Russia, Turkey and the UAE and other foreign powers have essentially agreed to a tentative truce now that promised to end all interference in the armed conflict in Libya. But really, the reality is a durable ceasefire and a UN-sponsored peace progress that the Germans still seek is definitely still a while away. So while we have seen some progress, both sides agreeing to meet again in Geneva to continue the conversation, it does look like at this point that the situation is still largely unresolved. We're going to continue to follow this for you. And in particular, look out for exactly how many barrels are going to be taken off the market as a result of this. And of course, follow the price reaction for you as well. Back to you for now. Dan, thank you so much for keeping us up to date with the latest. Now, in an exclusive interview with CNBC, OPEC Secretary General Mohamed Barkindo spoke about the ability of oil producers to cope with potential supply shocks over the next year. We remain focused on stability. For the first and the second quarter of 2020, the decision that we took on the 5th and 6th of December was to ensure that there is no imbalance uh, in these two quarters because there are seasonality factors and uh, the projections uh, had all shown that there was going to be a likely oversupplied market in these two quarters, and hence the decision to adjust supply by additional 500,000 barrels a day uh, that brought it to about 1.7 million barrels a day and factoring in the voluntary uh, overconformity of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia of nearly 400,000 uh, bringing the sum total to about 2.1 million barrels a day, all in order to ensure that the projected 
oversupply in these two quarters uh, obviated. Isn't that amazing, though? You basically cut production by 2.1 million, and the price of oil effectively goes down. Is that because the U.S.? How much is the United States a part of your conversation behind closed doors? Uh, always, we the uh, supply from the shell basins of the United States, uh, it's a major variable in the equation. Uh, we continue to see uh, a rise in the production uh, from these basins, although at a slower pace than what we saw in the last couple of years. Yes, we factor in this, but the, this, uh, the total equation is looking at both supply and demand sides. Uh, we can only address the supply side of the equation. Uh, the demand side is something uh, different that we watch with uh, very keen interest. Will uh, global demand be stronger this year than it was last year? At the moment, our numbers are still showing demand in the region of 1.2 million barrels a day demand growth uh, for 2020. Uh, much lower than what we had previous years, but I think it's still uh, robust. Uh, and we are hoping that some of the challenges we are facing in terms of international trade would also be addressed in the course of the year. So by and large, what we see from our side is an upside potential uh, of growth in term, from, from the demand side of the uh, equation, uh, which will... Uh, affect uh, the total balance, if you like, for the rest of the year. Well, let's get back to our conversation with Manish Singh, Chief Investment Officer, Crossbridge Capital. Uh, we've seen numerous times over the last several months the oil price rally on the back of things like supply disruption, mm -hmm. uh, the Saudi attacks in September, and then the latest escalation and tensions between Iran and the U.S. But effectively, the oil price has been capped by this supply flexibility uh, that's in the market. I mean, to what extent should investors be concerned about geopolitical risk when it comes to the oil price, given the supply flexibility that there currently is? So uh, my, my belief is that oil price will remain capped because I don't see a scenario where you will have a major war. Uh, and not because U.S. cannot fight one. I just think that the, just the political alignment of you know, willingness on part of America, willingness on the part of Iran to really engage with America mm -hmm. with disastrous consequences is just not there. So therefore, I, I don't see a, a war happening. And in that, in that sense, you have to just f f figure out where the supply and demand is. And as we heard just now in the interview, you know, there's plenty of supply and there's not as much demand because we are still talking about 2% growth in U.S., falling growth in China. And China is one of the biggest buyers of oil from Middle East. And that's another reason why you will not have a war because they will just convince everyone in Middle East that high oil price does not help them. So the only person who, only country that benefits from high oil price, Russia, uh, Russia, but they cannot have so much of influence that, you know, oil price is going to get increased. And all the oil price hike you saw in past decades was because the cartel was just working very well and they could just keep the price there. It was not based on genuine demand or lack of supply. The price was being manipulated very successfully and now it's just open and they just can't get back to it. So I just don't see oil price really being a factor in consumption, in, in inflation, or unless there's a major supply shock. I mean, it's always a push and pull, isn't it? One yeah. step forward, one step back. You know, you might get a bullish signal for oil from better than expected economic data out of China, but then you'll also get a bearish signal for oil because you've got more U.S. rigs in operation. Where would you see um, crude ending up by the end of the year, do you think? 
well, I would say maybe just about where it is today uh, in terms of, you know, just where we are time. seeing. Yeah. Uh, in terms of 60, 65, you know, whichever level we are now. But I don't even look at crude anymore because I don't see that's a major input in my decision making when I'm a macro guy and I look at other factors. And if you look at even the five-year, five-year inflation that we're talking about, it is at 1.3. It used to be at 1. It has come up slightly, 1.3. You're not seeing any increase in wages. You have, well, wages have increased because your U.S. 10-year has been at 1.5% three times since 2012 mm -hmm. and the wages have come up from one and a half percent to three percent but still not a factor i would rather look at wages as a major input to if there's an inflation scare mm -hmm. than oil prices for the reason that there's enough supply and i do not see demand is going to run away in any form when you have 0.6 percent growth in germany and eurozone is not growing and china growth falling or stalling where it is and u.s growing at two percent so i just don't see the demand side and there's plenty of supply that can be met if there's increase in demand Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.